Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Bore Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Shalom. Good to see everyone, and thank you, Ephraim, for sharing with us Teruma. Um, the Hafdor portion, the portion that comes after the Torah portion for this Shabbat, is similar to the previous portion that we just heard. It comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 5, and in the first verses of that chapter, and spills a little bit into chapter 6. Now, the reason why this portion has been selected to parallel uh, the, the Torah portion of Teruma is that, just to remind you of what Ephraim just shared with us, uh, Teruma is the taking up the offering, getting all the materials uh, to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it goes into considerable detail about how these materials came together and what they were used for and how they were used to build uh, uh, you know, the, the tabernacle. This portion is now King Solomon who is going to be assembling the materials and make the decision to build the temple, the permanent temple that would go into Jerusalem. And whereas Moses uh, is calling upon the hearts of the people to donate, to make an offering to the materials for it, in this portion, Solomon has been commissioned by God as the son of David to construct the permanent temple. And so he purposely, as the king of Israel, as the son of David, goes about to collect the necessary materials. Now, in the previous portion uh, of the Torah portion, there's quite a list of different materials, uh, a whole variety of different things. But this portion here of building the, the permanent temple only focuses in on two predominant materials. It focuses in on the cedar and the cypress, the wood product that was used for the structure, planking, roof, things like that, and the quarried stone 
because the temple in Jerusalem was built of stone and wood, whereas the tabernacle had been built of goat's hair and planks and acacia wood and covered with gold and, and all of the other assortment of things. And there's a very interesting comparison being made here. Um, and uh, in the Torah portion, there's great detail that is given to the materials, all the different things that came together, whereas this portion is very simple. It's just two basic materials that are talked about and emphasized. And it begs a whole series of questions about how we go from the tabernacle with all of its detail, and in fact, several Torah portions now we're going to have in a week, and week after week, where it's going to go into quite a bit of detail about how the tabernacle was constructed, all of the elements that were in it, all the pieces coming together, and uh, it, the high priest garments and all those things. But a lot of that is kind of already in place, the understandings of it. So when Solomon goes to create uh, the temple in Jerusalem, there's certain things kind of already understood. So we're kind of building on what we learned about the tabernacle. We're just making a permanent facility now in Jerusalem. And so the scripture doesn't go into the same exhaustive details it did before. It kind of builds on top of that and goes forward to just talk about the permanent place in Jerusalem. Now, any time that we um, do this study about the tabernacle and we expand it to the level of the temple in Jerusalem, the sages of Israel ask this basic question, and by the way, it's a worthy question for us to consider. And that is that the scripture tells us that God's presence, God is so great that all of the stars of the universe, all of the things that, that God's can't contain God, that God is still even greater than all of the creation and he exists even beyond the creation. And in fact, his throne is described as being beyond the stars. The God himself in his throne is actually beyond the stars of the universe. And in our thinking, in our finite thinking, we could only come to terms with the universe and we look at the universe, it's massive, it's gigantic, it's incredible. And God says, even that can't contain me. And yet, God gives instruction to Moses and now to Solomon. Oh, by the way, I want you to build this little shack, this little hut down here on earth. And by the way, that's where I'll dwell with you. So there's a fundamental question. How is that possible? If God is this immense and great, how can any dwelling place, any structure, whether it be the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem, how can it possibly contain or have anything of the substance or presence of God? And that question and asking a question and answering the questions is part of the clue of understanding why we have the instructions of the tabernacle and why we have the instruction of the temple. Why would that be done is because God actually through that can manifest certain things to us. And it, what it turns out is that from the very beginning of the tabernacle, you know, Moses said, if the heart was moved to make a contribution, if the heart was moved, in other words, all these materials were assembled, it was, it was because something originated in their heart uh, toward it. Well, the same thing is true that is said to Solomon. 
If, if you create this, God says, and I'll read the scripture to you here in just a few moments. If you create this, if you build this, and then if you'll direct your heart toward me, then I will dwell in that with you. And essentially, uh, what, it's, uh, what, what, what would come away with is the reason why there's such exhaustive detail on the materials and all the things, because that's where you and I are at. You know, you and I are, you know, we're in the mundane level stuff, but God's trying to get us to think in bigger terms, greater terms. Um, Ephraim emphasized at the end of his teaching about if you look at the construction, you look at the way it's built, it actually shows you patterns of greater things. Well, let, let's look at the gigantic pattern. Why in the world, God who cannot be contained by the whole universe, why would he be talking about being being in the tabernacle in the wilderness or in the temple in Jerusalem. It turns out, and I'm going to give you the punchline on this whole thing, it turns out <laughs> that if we'll do, follow his instructions and do what it is that he said, and we'll do it from the heart, then God will make his presence known to us in that place. He'll, make, he'll, he'll dwell in there and make his presence known to us. We can come to that place and do business with him. Uh, now, we know he's all over the place. I mean, surely if he's all over the place, we should be able to do business with him anywhere, right? Well, prayer certainly is that. We can pray anywhere we're at, and we can do business with God in prayer. But what he's really saying is, I want you to come and worship. I want you to come and learn. I want you to be instructed. I want there to be a very specific relationship. And so I'm going to make my presence known in this place, and you come with your heart. And then we're going to do business together. At the altar, the table of the Lord, we'll do business between God and man. You come and worship me. I will make my presence in that place. I'll make myself known in that place where I put my name. And so of this instruction, as I have taught this portion many years past, we need to learn about this because it teaches about how God dwells in us. How does he make his presence known in us? If we'll learn what he did there in the tabernacle, in the temple, it helps to explain how do we recognize and sense God's presence in us. Because, oh, by the way, there's a temple to the Lord in us that was built by the son of David. The Messiah built a temple in our hearts. And as Ephraim emphasized uh, about you got to have a soft material to write the commandments on, he wants us to use the tablets of our heart so he can write the commandments on our heart. And this is a, a place that God's presence is known uh, in us. So that's the punchline on all of this. But now, with that kind of said, and i am tell you where I'm going with this, let's go back to our portion. I want to read a couple of things. There's a couple of interesting things we want to take note of that Solomon is directed to do as compared to what Moses was told to do with all the assembly of materials and so forth. So beginning at 1 Kings chapter 5, it reads as follows. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying... 
You know that David, my father, was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him, and until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. If you remember, King David wanted to build the temple. He expressed that very, very specific desire. He wanted to do that. He even assembled the materials. But God prohibited him from building the temple because he was a man of warfare. He was a man that had shed blood. And in fact, in David's reign as king, he was constantly battling enemies around the area. And Solomon is taking note of, those days are now done. We have no more adversaries. Their peace has come to all of our neighbors. And now is the time to build the temple. And he, being the son of David, has been instructed and anointed to go and to do that now that we have peace. It goes on to read, verse 5, And behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And the Lord spoke to David, my father, saying, Your son, referring to Solomon, whom I will set on your throne and in your place, he will build the house for my name. I want you to take note of something very significant here. It is the son of David that builds the temple. By the way, let me just, uh, that's, a, that's a principle. Go back into the study of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Guess, I've got news for you. Guess who's really building the tabernacle in the wilderness? The Messiah. You're going to find evidence of the Messiah as part of that. And by the way, the temple in Jerusalem, who's really building it? The picture of the Messiah, the son of David, Solomon will do it. And by the way, the temple that's built in us, who, who builds it? The Messiah, the son of David, is the one who builds it. The Messiah, the son of David, is always the one who builds the house, okay, for, for the Lord, for him to dwell, to be with the people. He's the one that does it. Now, I want you to take note. I want to make this quick comparison right off the bat. We read in the Torah portion about this tabernacle being built. By the way, where is the tabernacle today? We don't have it. Do we have the materials that we're left? Nope, no, nope, we don't have it. Uh, how about the temple in Jerusalem? That one was made with stone. They set stone, and so do, do we have it? No, we don't have it. Uh, do we know where the materials are for some of it? Well, there's some archaeologists that think they found some of the pieces of it. But for the most part, if you go over there and say, well, I, I don't see them anymore. I, I, I don't know where they're at. But what about this one? What about this Tabernacle, this temple that's been built in here. How long does this one last? Now, your, your mortal body might go away, but I guarantee you that temple still remains. The permanent temple of the Lord remains in the souls of his people. It does not get destroyed. The pieces don't go away. And the Messiah is the one who's built the, the permanent one in us that remains forever. Uh, you should take note of that, that, trans, that, that transition from tabernacle to temple to us is a very powerful lesson, a very powerful sp spiritual principle that we need to come to terms with for our own walk you know, before the Lord, what God is really doing with us. That's the reason why this study is so important to us. If you want to understand what God's really doing inside of you, go learn about how God built the tabernacle and how he built the temple. And those who, in, the, in our messianic movement, who uh, emphasize 
uh, the teaching of the building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, how, how it used to work. Those are very, very important teachings because if you can get, come to terms with those and grasp what those teachers are trying to share with you, it, it lays the path out for the wonderful things God's doing inside of all of us. And the pattern is clearly there. So let me continue to read on uh, from here as to what is in this Haftor portion. He goes on to say, verse 6 of chapter 5, Now therefore command they that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Sidon and Tyre is up in the southern part of Lebanon, and this is where the cedars used to do. And basically what he's saying is they have this incredible reputation for being able to process these giant Lebanese cedars and to build beautiful planks and beautiful lumber, lumbering it for use in beautiful things. And by the way, for those of you, I'm sure you know this, cedar as wood, is a natural wood that preserves itself. Uh, if uh, young ladies uh, in my generation used to have what was called a cedar hope chest, they would get a chest that's made of cedar and they would put their personal treasures of things that they hoped for their future home their future house, their future marriage, they would put them in this hope chest. They would put them, and they would put it in a cedar chest so everything could be kept. And they might get a gift like from an aunt, uh, such as some doilies. I remember this in the case of my own family. They received gifts from previous generations that was given to a young lady in the hopes of that she'd be engaged one day and have her own home. And she would keep all these treasures in the cedar chest. And the reason why a cedar chest always worked out good because bugs can't get through it. Nothing can be corroded. Nothing can be uh, corrupted. Uh, in here, in the ministry, we have many costumes, dance outfits, and so forth, from many times that we've held festival to the Lord. We build a cedar box, a cedar chest, if you will, that hangs all of these clothing. And so we have no concern about moth or anything getting in there and destroying those garments in there because the cedar itself protects from it. And the cedar itself doesn't need to be treated or stained or other things. It, it's a long-standing wood, has a sweet uh, fragrance uh, associated with it. That's what fends off the bugs and other kinds of things from it. The bugs can't stand that. And uh, it, it has natural protective properties, and it's a high, high-quality wood. You know, certainly much better than pine. Pine's a very soft wood. It can be, you know, you can wipe a piece of pine out in one year, you know, uh, if it's out in the elements. You take a piece of cedar and you put it out and it, it remains. Uh, just to go one step person per, uh, further on this, when I built the pergola in my house, uh, in my home, uh, I specifically went and got cedar uh, posts six by six cedar posts that I had set into the ground so that the pergola could be built on it. And those cedar posts will outlast the whole rest of the pergola, you know, of the other materials that are done on it because that wood is, uh, remains. Well, that's the wood that was selected by Solomon. That's the wood I want for the temple in Jerusalem. I want that wood to last. 
I want it to remain uh, there. So he directs for that wood to be done, and up at the city of Tyre and the Sidonians up in the city of Sidon, up in Lebanon, is where they not only have that wood, but they process that wood. Verse 7, and it came about when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message which you have sent to me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress timber. And my servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. And I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me. And I will have them broken up there that you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to all my household. So the deal is Solomon's going to give food to all of the people up there in Lebanon. They're going to process some of this wood. They're going to have it float it down in rafts down to through the ocean along the coast. They'll pick a place on the coast. They'll break the rafts up. They'll uh, disassemble them. And then they'll carry the word to Jerusalem so it can be used to build the temple. Pretty cool plan. Going to involve a lot of people, though, obviously. Verse 10, so Hiram gave Solomon so much as he desired of the cedar and the cypress wood, timber. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cords of beaten oil, thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon, just as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and, and Solomon, and the two of them made a covenant. Now, well, anytime you can work with somebody and it's working for both ways, you build a good relationship. In fact, let me make a recommendation to you about if, if there's somebody out there that you really feel you need to get a good working relationship with, you want to improve the relationship with, I'll tell you what you got to do. You got to go make an agreement with that person where they work on something and you work on something and he gets what he needs and you get what you need. And, and, and the way we used to say it in leadership is a good relationships are built out of functional work groups. That's the technical way of saying. If you can get two guys, two companies to come together and work together as a functional work group, that's how you build good, strong relationships. And that's what's being expressed here. Uh, between he who was leading in Lebanon versus Solomon, they built an excellent relationship because they had this cooperative working agenda uh, between the two of them. Now, verse 12, or verse 13. Now, King Solomon levied forced labors from all of Israel, and forced labors numbered 30,000 men, and he sent to Lebanon 10,000 a month in relays, and they were in Lebanon a month and two months at home, and Adariam was uh, over the forced labors. Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters, 80,000 hewers of stone in the mountains, and besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work, then the king commanded and they cored great stones, costly stones, to lay the foundation of the, of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Kabbalites... Uh, Gabalites, uh, cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. So here's the description of the materials here being given as to the temple that was in Jerusalem and the incredible laborious task that had to be underway. Now just think about that for a moment. Uh, they didn't have no powered chainsaws. 
okay? Uh, but they had people who knew how to, uh, to do lumbering and, and how to cut timber and, uh, in the ancient times. And they also had stone, the men who had the expertise to be stone masons, uh, to quarry large blocks of stone out of, uh, out of the earth. And then on top of that, this is without caterpillar, uh, you know, equipment, they transported all this stuff up to Jerusalem. Uh, and for us in the modern day, you know, we're aghast trying to understand how in the world they did that. For those of you who go on tour to um, Jerusalem, who get a chance to go to the land of Israel, at the Jerusalem Archaeological Park, um, which is on toward the southern side of the Temple Mount, when you go in there to go to the southern steps and, uh, and uh, up, you know, it's south of the, of the Kotel, and when you go into that area, they actually have on display, which is really beautiful, they have on display some of what they believe to be the large tools that were used for the stone quarrying and for handling timber and the cranes they would have made and how they would have operated because you would need cranes to move these blocks and, and so forth. And so they show the actual designs which comes from ancient uh, archeological depictions and so forth and they've actually, at the park, they've actually created some models of some of that equipment that may have been used by the ancients uh, to do things. And once you see the tools, the equipment they would have done, then you can begin to understand how could they have technically have accomplished all this without the modern tools and conveniences that we have today in terms of construction cranes and bulldozers and skip loaders and, and dump trucks and all the things that we have today. How could they have done it? Well, they certainly had no shortage of human labor. Today in a big construction project, it's a handful of men with a whole bunch of tools and special equipment that's able to accomplish it. But in those days, you had more labor, and so you had to come up with an organized way how you could have many men working and accomplishing the same thing that a machine would do. And obviously, geometry and mathematics and leverage and uh, all of those kinds of things came into play. Uh, to be able to create tools that were man-run, uh, wheels and, and crane and, lever and leverages and blocks and tackles and all of the kinds of things that they created in, uh, in the ancients to be able to move these massive and very, very heavy elements, big timbers, stones, and so forth, because these things were a couple of tons apiece. Just imagine every one of those blocks being moved in. Now, it gets even more interesting because all the wood came from Lebanon. It wasn't even in the land. I mean, they had to go to another country to get it, and then it had to be transported down. Well, now, I understand they used the sea. They built rafts. They came down the coast. They landed them. They took the rafts apart, and then they had to haul it all up to Jerusalem. And by the way, from the coast up to Jerusalem, that's not some small trek. That was a very serious effort. And Solomon, according to his plan, put shifts of men. You know, it was like, especially, you know, you get assigned one month there to work, and then you come back for two months, and then you get another month, you go. So it was shift work, okay? 
I don't know if they formed a union on this deal or not, Joe, but, but in any case, it, it was a highly coordinated thing. There was management and there were workers and, 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 and it worked. Uh, they accomplished uh, great things. Now let me shift into chapter six because there's a couple of more things that are mentioned here that I want us to take note of. Uh, chapter six, beginning at verse one, it says, now it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, which is today in our modern calendar would be the month of Iyar, um, began to build the house of the Lord. As for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20 cubits, its height 30 cubits, and the porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house. Its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits, and also for the house he made windows with artistic frames, and against the wall of the house he built um, stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers all around. And the lowest story was five cubits wide, the middle was six cubits wide, the third was seven cubits wide. For on the outside, he made offsets in the wall of the house all around the order that the beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. Now, what he's talking about is that there was some very unique construction features in this thing. And in fact, there's quite a bit of detail that's given to us from other sources of exactly what was going on here, and it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, architects and people who are professional stone masons find this stuff to be utterly fascinating. There's some really interesting techniques being employed here on how to bring it about. And one of the things you see on the walls, and we know this technique was used um, in the building of all the stones in the temple, you set a base stone. It can be a relatively heavy stone, and you set it in place, and then each stone that comes along has to mate with it exactly correctly, side to side. And it so obviously has to be the same height. Now the stone, the next stone that goes on top of it, you know, when you set that, there's an interlacing that is primarily uh, light where the stone will actually set on the two stones down below rather than just setting on top of one. In other words, it's not just a stack of stones. They're interlaced where two here, here, now this one will go here, and then the other one will go here, and the other one will go there, and, and so they interlace into it. That gives structural support to it. But each layer of stone as you go up, guess what? It's not quite the same face as the front. The next stone that goes up is moved back oh, about that much. So it's not flush with the face, it's set back ever so slightly. And the stone above them is set back ever so slightly. So when the stones go up, they all, when you're looking out the building, you think, oh, they all look aligned. They're all the same. They're not the same. Each stone, as it gets bigger, has been aligned a little bit so it's set center. And the idea behind this is, should you have an earthquake, you know, if you're all the way out to the edge of the uh, edge of the other stone, you get any kind of a shifting, you could have a change in the gravity, the center of gravity on the stone, and that's how you would have a wall that would tumble. But if you offset and set in just ever so slightly, the higher you get, 
no matter what kind of shaking, you never lose your center of gravity in your upper stones, and therefore you don't have the destruction of the wall. The wall remains stable. And it's really kind of an optical illusion. You go up and you think they're all the same, but they're not. And by the way, you can see this at the Kotel. If you go to the Kotel today, you know, the western wall, you go up the first stone, you'll see there's a little bit of an edge on those big base stones. There's just a little bit of an edge. If you reach all the way up to the next one, there's just a little bit of a ledge. And you reach all the way up there, and there's just a little bit of a ledge. And each successive stone is offset just a little bit, and that's the reason why the wall remains stable. That's the reason why it remains standing. By the way, it makes for perfect places for when you're at the hotel, for writing out your prayers on a little thing and inserting them in, because there's a little place for the wall to accept them. Um, but that's the ancient way of building stones, and we believe that such things were done in combination between timber and stones to create... Um, uh, the temple that Solomon built. This was, the, this was the preferred construction technique. And by the way, he gives the details of, you know, the size and so forth, just like we got from the tabernacle. Now, let me uh, get quickly here toward our end because there's a very important point I want to share with you. Uh, verse 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this house which you're building, if you will walk in my statutes by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Again, here's the linkage. You see, it's not just the house. It's if your heart is right, Solomon, if you can get the children of Israel, get their hearts right, then I'll make my presence known in this place. Because quite honestly, this place isn't big enough to house me. But I will make my presence known there if you and your people, your hearts will be right toward me. Okay? Verse 15, then he built the walls of the house on the inside of the boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the ceiling, overlaid the walls on the inside with wood. He overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress, and he built 20 cubits on the rear part of the house and boards of cedar to the floor to the ceiling, and he built them up, them for it on the inside of the sanctuary, even as the most holy place. And in the house, that is, nave in front of the inner part was 40 cubits long. There was cedar on the house within and carved in the shape of the gourds and opened. And it was all cedar and there was no stone seen. And did you hear that? The stone on the inside of the house was not seen. It was a complete layer of wood inside. And he got the carvers to come in and make the most beautiful, ornate, artistic things inside. I mean, you go in a nice house, you see crown molding. How would you like to have the entire wall of your house is cedar and there's carvings in it? And hard cypress wood. By the way, cypress wood, beautiful artistic wood. The grain and everything that goes in it. That was the interior of the temple that Solomon built. And then on top of that, verse 21, he overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. So the shape was there, and then it's all covered in gold. So when you walked inside the temple, it was pure gold. With all of this stone, wood, and then gold, you know, was, was the interior. And I remind you about how God gave the same kind of direction back when he built the furnishings. There was wood, there was gold on the inside, gold on the outside. It was made to be very, extremely beautiful and uh, very powerful in its expression and how it was laid out. 
And he goes on further with the details that you see there in chapter 6. Let me see, there was one particular thing I wanted to share with you that came out of this. And I may have already skipped over it, but let me, let me look for just a moment. Let me tell you what it is uh, that's in this passage. There's a, one particular statement about the construction that I wanted you to take note of, and that it was this. When the temple was being built in Jerusalem, there was no sound of tools. There was no sound of men working with labor's tools. All the materials that built the temple were all built other places. The wood came down from Lebanon. Uh, and, uh, the, um, and when they disassembled the rafts of the wood, they would process the wood there, and then they would actually carry completed pieces up to Jerusalem that would then be installed in the temple. It, you know, you, we didn't haul any raw materials up to the temple site and then process it and go ahead and put them in. It's not like the, the typical construction job where you build a house where the carpenters come out here and they get a pile of lumber and they got their saws set up and the guys are running around and they're putting the house together. And so when you hear the, all the sounds of hang, 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 you know, hammers being hit and you hear saws, zzz, you know, you, you didn't hear none of that when the temple was being built. All the materials were processed elsewhere even to including the coring of the stone. There was never the sound of a hammer striking stone or moving stone. So when the stone pieces came, they'd already been processed, built, designed, and they knew exactly. Now, they didn't have a prototype, so this was quite an undertaking on the part of the management and the leadership of how to construct this thing. Now, I've got to ask you something. I know about the cedars coming from, uh, from Lebanon. Those stones, we know for a fact that at the Temple Mount, that many of the stones of the foundation that are there of the Temple Mount were actually quarried slightly up the mountain. Herod quarried big stones up the mountain, and they just had to move them a short distance and set them in place. But the stones that were quarried for the Temple didn't come from that immediate area. Archaeologists believe that the stones that were used for the coring, the stones for the temple, actually came from about a mile north of the Temple Mount. Um, and uh, the reason why the scripture is so emphatic about that there was no sound of, of hammering or chiseling or work of tools for the building of it is because the quarry that was used for the stone of the temple was an underground quarry. They actually tunneled into the earth, not above ground, didn't open up the ground, tunneled into the earth and quarried bedrock stone out of the earth and then brought them out of, by way of tunnels to come to the Temple Mount. And thus, this is the reason why there was no sound of a chisel or hammer. And the emphasis being on this, that when the temple came together, it was quiet. The altar was operating the whole time. They were worshiping the Lord the whole time. And there was no construction sounds that interrupted with the worship of the Lord while the temple was being built. It was built in peace. 
and quiet. By the way, there's an incredible spiritual lesson there for us. <laughs> you and I, this temple that gets built inside of us, it's not built um, with materials of uh, gold, silver, um, and uh, goat's hair, and stones, and cedars from Lebanon. It's built in here the same way the temple in Jerusalem was built, quietly. And by the way, the materials that we use to build this temple, and when there's great emphasis on the materials that was used, the materials that Yeshua uses to build the temple inside of us are things like humility, loving kindness, lots of love, mercy, self-control, joy. He builds the house of the Lord with those materials in here. And you don't hear a lot of hammers and saws and clanking going on. It's done quietly in here, just like the temple in Jerusalem was built, quietly. And he knows exactly how to build every piece that needs to go in the house exactly where it needs to be placed. He's that master of builder uh, for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beginning of the teaching of the building of the tabernacle and understanding how you build your house. And Lord, as, as we said before, as we study this area, it's so that we might learn how you build the house in us and how the house operates in us. Help us to come to understand those things better. Edify us and strengthen us in our most holy faith with these instructions and help us to understand your very presence amongst us and yet you are king of the whole universe. We thank you for our redemption. We thank you for our Messiah. We thank you for the master builder, the builder of the house of God. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.